I need to tell them what color they need to paint the wall. I mean, just paint it the color that you want it to be. I mean, if you like pink, paint it pink. Who cares? Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. We're already well into the second season of this project, and in almost every episode, we've mentioned the pace of construction and the development of the built environment in China over the last decade. So it's about time we had an architect represented in the mosaic. My guest today grew up in Belgium, is half Flemish and half English, and works alongside her Dutch husband. And you'll hear how she integrates a European perspective into the story of her life and work in China. We cover the rest of her intro very early on in our chat, so let's get on with it. Let's just introduce you properly. So you are the chief architect. What's your title?、Um, yeah, you could say that I'm、um, the owner, kind of co-owner、uh, and chief architect of AIM Architecture. How do you spell that? AIM. A I M. A I M. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Wendy. Oh, I should probably say your full name as well. So you're Wendy Saunders. Yes. So what object did you bring that, in some way, describes your life in China? This one, this object. I'm intrigued. I have no idea what I'm looking at. So tell me what's going on. This is a, a, a sample of a, an object that we wanted to make for for a project, and we never made it in the end because it became too complicated and stuff like that. But it's a, a rubber mold, and we wanted to use it for a, a seat of a chair. So we did a lot of testing with that, and in the end, we did the full rubber one, which of course is then too hard to sit. But it was kind of also the funny thing: maybe you don't need to sit; it's just kind of an object to have in the house.、Okay. Um, I kind of in my head I called it like the king seat because of the kind of crowny spikes, but it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> so it has you, this kind of duality to it, right? Oh, I see. So it's it's about being high profile, being、yeah. high status, but also inflicting pain. Exactly. <laughs> Why I brought it here is because it really shows what was interesting in the beginning. What always fascinated me to be in China. When I first arrived as a, an architect, it was just everywhere on the street. People were making things. You used to have a lot of these small stores and small little workshops, and had no clue what they're really making. But you could、right. just feel it everywhere. They were doing things and making things. Yes, and that was really exciting. Everywhere people were producing stuff, and Now we're part of that、uh, community, of course, because we make a lot of furniture or pieces or things and、uh, interiors or buildings. So it's a big part of what is China for us. And we, I remember also kind of our first、um, office tables that we made. We made on the street. This guy they they used to make、uh, window frames, and we just thought, how cool is that to kind of just design a table. That is made specifically with the stuff that he has, and it was it was really fun to to do, to make something like that, which otherwise you would never do because you just did it with the pieces that he had in the shack. Yes, kind of thing. That is a great jumping off point because I think you've just described one of the sort of conflicting things that you have to do as an architect to、mm. balance, you know, the style with. The practical use, right? Yes. You have these huge buildings, and you think, "Oh, no expense spared. Look at this amazing, shiny building." And then you realize, "Oh, wait a minute. The 
the quality wasn't quite what you first expected, right? Yes, that is, I think, the constant dilemma here. But to be on the positive side, now it is kind of changing a lot. I think that the the quality is improving immensely and also the the knowledge of, of technology and the knowledge of how things are made is, is also really changing a lot. Because in the beginning, I think a lot of these workers, these construction workers, they come from the countryside. They have no formal education whatsoever. And they used to come... Uh, to work for a part-time of the year when the farm was not doing well and they used to work in construction and that was... So there was some people in the team, of course, were knowledgeable, but actually a lot of people who actually were making the things did not have any construction background or there's not a school that you go to learn construction Mm. um, or, or masonry or anything like that. So if you start thinking about it, it's very normal that that they had to go through that whole process. Well, we're touching upon this subject, but let me ask you outright then. So what is the state of architecture right now? It's doing extremely well. There's so much uh, going on. And again, the the evolution that we've gone through or that I've seen um, when we arrived and we we wanted to start small practice, it was really very difficult to find a client and to actually have a few staff to actually support you because nobody wanted to work in a small company. It was totally not interesting for them. Everybody would want to work in a 500 people company because it was like secure and it was, that's what China at that time was. And if you see now, there's so many independent, smaller designers, architects, and they've traveled, they've uh, better educated or they're educated abroad or wherever, but they're really very interested in what's going on. Let's go back to when you first came. So explain what the world was like in China then. There was just a lot of um, a lot of changes going on, and I think everybody was quite surprised and astonished about the the, the tabula rasa that was going through, with little respect at that time of, of the old, maybe, which again now is totally changed, um, which is great. I don't think at that moment. I dare to judge it because you also don't really understand it. I mean, the conditions a lot of these buildings were in were also not great. As a tourist, you pass by, you think, oh, how cute. But actually, the conditions for the people to live there are not really, I mean, you would not want to live there. So maybe many things got destroyed that shouldn't have. But it is also kind of like an evolution of of learning. And I think we, um, in Europe anyway... It took hundreds of years to go through that. Well, here they did it in such a short time. It's kind of normal. It's kind of learning through doing, basically. Mm. Which is, you know, something you can say about China writ large across everything. It's this trying, iterating, failing, making mistakes, trying again, making new mistakes. And in your world, these are building-sized mistakes, right? Yes. (laughs) But it makes it also kind of a bold... it has a boldness to it. And it, it's also architects in Europe. I can only speak for European architects, but um, they're very serious. They, they, you know, they think they can change the world. And and in the back of my mind, I also still think <laughs> I can do that. But uh, it, it makes everything very serious and you don't take things lightly because it has this huge responsibility to it. It, it, it is. Yes. But on the other hand, you know, not everything has to be liked by everybody. Not everything has to be... Um, things can just sometimes be a little bit off or a little bit weird or a little bit funny. And it is also okay. It kind of also makes a city 
a city. It makes the urban fabric a lot richer. In the beginning, when I came to Shanghai, the neon it was amazing. I loved it. You know, it makes everything so happy and so vibrant. And it was for me truly like this cliche of Asia. And then when I went to Europe, it's so boring. Right. You know, everything is so quaint and so perfect, or they try at least to be. You know, and even if it's not perfect, it's it's derelict. There's not really a lot in the middle, and I think this kind of freedom a little bit um, in a city is is very refreshing. And I think that that、mm-hmm. liveliness when I came to China gave me a huge sense of freedom as a designer, actually. Right. How interesting. And I guess it's also a consequence of. As you've already mentioned, the fast pace of change, where you see it happening before you, so it's much more like obvious to talk about, right? Yeah, in Europe, I remember when before coming to China, I lived in Amsterdam, and、uh, when we left、um, Amsterdam to come here, they were redoing the Amsterdam station, and it was like a huge building pit, and they were doing like the metro, second metro line or something, and I think twelve years later, they were still doing exactly that, <laughs> and. They were still building the second metro line. Well, when I arrived in Shanghai, there was a number one and a number two line, and now how many do you have? Is it fifteen? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was just this constant looking, going back and forth, and thinking, "Wow, you know, what are we doing?" Of course, there's a dark side to that,、uh, especially in interiors, and which is also what I also do: the the speed and and things that get built and knocked down. Is sometimes shocking in the sense of you know how much waste it creates and how much energy it, it wastes,、um, and I think that is something that not a lot of people think about. But I think it also does change when it's about making a, a clear business plan. Or it used to be, I'm just gonna do this and I'm just gonna take a chance and make a little store. But they had no really idea what they were going to do with it, or, or didn't really do the numbers properly, so they failed. And I think now, because things have gotten a lot more expensive, also construction has gotten a lot more expensive, which is a good thing because people think maybe a little bit harder about what do I really want to do and what effect will it have and、uh, how will my business be sustainable at least for a few years. All these factors will bring change, and I, I think in the in the right direction. Yes, you could build anything before, and it would somehow still make money, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but now you've got to be more conscious. Yeah, of, well, what need, is it? Exactly. You、mm. you need more of a plan, an idea, and and、um, it's not like that anymore. That you can just make money by default. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you start your business? I was working for a company, which was really nice, and I got really well paid, but I was a bit bored、um, because I just didn't really feel that I could. Um, bring so much to the table, and so we thought, oh, why don't we just kind of do some freelancing competitions and try to kind of get some small work, which was really hard at the time because nobody knew us, nobody wanted to work with us. We didn't have any Guangxi or anything.、Right. But then we we thought, okay, maybe we need to kind of stop doing these competitions and try and get some small work that we kind of build our portfolio and and have some fun building something at least.、Mm. And we met our first client was a friend of a friend. It was a gallery owner, and、um, he didn't really have a lot of money, and we didn't have any work. So we said, okay, you don't need to pay us. We'll do it for free,、Ooh. but you have nothing to say. <laughs> oh, so you had total creative control.、Yes. That's pretty good. Yeah. So what did you end up doing? 
Well, the thing was that design at that time, everything was very glamorous and gold plated, gold or a lot of marble, chandeliers, mm, and mm. what what was seen as Western at the time. Mm. And he didn't have a lot of money to build anything, so it's just like like just only build a few things, but then build them well. So we left the space very very raw and just built a, a beautiful uh, mountain to have the office inside and kind of have a stage. And then now it would look very, very normal because everybody's doing that. Mm. But then at the time, it took a lot of convincing. And luckily, he was quite relaxed with it and he was okay with it. But it would have been hard to do that for anybody else at that time. Nobody would have done it. Right. And the aesthetic you're talking about is where you have exposed materials. You have yeah, ex- we we left a lot of the space right. as it as found and kind of built in some things, um, also for budget reasons, but also because we just thought it was a lot more interesting to show what was there instead of hiding it with marble. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean that allows me to ask you then: like, do you have? a specific design aesthetic or are you really at the mercy of what your clients tell you to do like what is that process we i try to always kind of find really the essence of what they're trying to do it has a lot to do with the context of the space that you have but it also has to do with the client's vision and the client's dream and trying to really translate that as strongly as possible within that space for example, then uh, Harmay, this is the uh, cosmetic brand that we work with. The interesting thing with them was that they came and said, we're an online company and we want to make an offline store. And we really want it to be not too different from each other. But how do you do that? So we tried to create something that was a place where things got sent out from to the people that were buying online as well. So it became a hub where online and offline came together. Basically, they just asked us to do one store and then they kind of also, re- we, we got on quite well together. And um, Who are they? They are Chinese? Yeah, the uh, two Chinese men. And they're very good at what they do. And, and they're very fast in reacting to the market. They're, mm. they're fast in how they... Uh, develop their product, their branding, their marketing. They just interact a lot with their community. And that's what made it very interesting to work with them because mm. they, they always push you a little bit further and or they ask difficult questions. Mm. So with that as a starting point, then, how did you translate that into the finished product that you made? You, you try and understand the, the, the brand or the client. And there's also a little bit of gut feeling, of course. One, you have organizing the space, which is just like how can people uh, experience the whole area. But then you also have the whole um, look and feel and, and experiences. Everybody's talking about experiences in, in, in interior or in retail. But experience is very personal. What I think is a good experience is probably not the same as you find it a good experience. So it is also a very vague mm. concept. Also, like with this client, the first proposal we did for them, because they were not clear and maybe we didn't ask the right questions at the time, we kind of did the proposal that was, they they said yes, 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 yes. But by the time we were ready to build it, they said, it's not us. We're not, we're not going to do it. Mm. And we totally redid everything. And it was so much more interesting because then we real and they were totally right. And I was, and then you start asking the real questions and then you can try and make something real. It is, it has a lot more layers than just a simple kind of quirky fact. Is yes. maybe what I'm trying to say. Yes. 
And you mentioned real. This makes me think about the designs that look very good, especially if you think about social media. Like it looks like perfection, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then when you actually try and use it, it doesn't work, right? That's obviously what you try desperately to avoid. <laughs> the thing is, you as a designer, you're a human. You can't make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You have the builder who's human who also might make a few mistakes. Mm. Things, especially here, can go quite fast. So there's some yes. things that are just overlooked. And and then those mistakes can aggregate very quickly. Yes. For example, in a hotel room or something, you do have sometimes drawers that don't open. Or <laughs> yes. they were made to go open, but they only go open five centimeters because there's something else sticking out. There's a, a wall sticking out too far and yes. nobody actually looked at that corner and things go too fast or because... They just didn't make the drawing properly and didn't think things through. But all these, if you can imagine, all these little details need to be thought through, need to be designed, need to be drawn out and then built. So there's a lot of these things or like um, chairs not being able to sit at the table because (laughs) the leg is there or they didn't think of that. And, you know, or they didn't decide what chair to buy before they made the table, for example. You know, so you have a lot of these. Yeah. Because I've been to hotels like that where it looks pristine and then you go, oops. And then as the customer, that's kind of what sticks in your head, right? Yes, exactly. Isn't that funny? And it's sometimes something beyond your control and yet you have to own that mistake sometimes too. So Mm -hmm. it's it's a fine line between over-designing, not not caring enough. And yeah, it's it's not, there's a lot of gray there. Mm. Interesting. And like, I sense that we're talking about interior design a lot. Like, what is the difference between interior design versus architecture? I think there's a big difference. I studied to be an architect. I didn't do any interior design before I came to China. And I was not interested at all in the beginning. I found it very trivial. I remember being uh, in Holland and we built a a, a house. And then the couple that were moving in, they said, we've tried many interior architects, but they all make it so different. And we really like the architecture. Why don't you be the interior designer for it? Uh And I was like, what? Why? I need to tell them what color they need to paint the wall. I mean, just paint it the color that you want it to be. I mean, if you like pink, paint it pink. Who cares? That was kind of my thought about it. But then, of course, I realized it's not like that. So I don't. And it's extremely difficult interior design as well. I mean, if you do it well, it is extreme. There's so many details on it. There's so many thoughts and processes. And so I've really learned to appreciate it. But the bigness of, of and the boldness of an architecture project is really also very fun to work on and to kind of be able to orchestrate how people use a building is really very satisfying as an architect and to really kind of make an impact on, on how society can use a building or also the surroundings of it. The building has or should have uh, an impact on its surroundings, how you stand or use the space around it. And I think that is very interesting. Now, for example, we're working on a 25,000 square meter medical resort in uh, Wenzhou. And um, it's this beautiful landscape, uh, really amazing valley. And you stand there and you think, wow, you know, first of all, you think, why do we build anything here? It's so beautiful. (laughs) But then you think, okay, you know, people can come and enjoy this. And, you know, I want to do a good job to kind of respect what is there. So you have this image in your mind, you do something small and kind of light, but then you look at the program and it's so big. I want the building to actually hoover over the land so it kind of land and and nature can just live underneath this building. So we ended up with this huge, 
huge building. It looks so big, but the choice of how we did it comes from that idea that we want to have the mountain that it's on to actually still be the mountain. Mm. And we didn't want to kind of stick a big building right on the mountain. So just by starting that idea has a very big consequence on how you design the building. Mm. This is the kind of thing that I think of when I think of architecture. It's this conversation between the building and its surroundings, right? Yes. Do you see the built environment in general now being a little bit more aware of that conversation? Yes, I think now a lot more people are conscious of where they build, what they build. I think sometimes as a young architect, it's very tempting to, you know, you have a great idea and you're so proud of the idea and I just want to build it. And it doesn't really matter where it is. And that you need to kind of stop yourself mm. because there are many ideas. And sometimes they're like, you know, great idea, but we're not doing it here. Yeah. You know, just save it for another time. Yes. And you're talking about your projects and, you know, I'm talking to you as an individual, but of mm. course you have a team. So tell me about how you work in your team. Well, yeah, we have a team. So we have like 35 to 40 people and, and every project will have a project architect and a small team. And we have about... 70% or 65% local and the rest would be international. It's not always easy in that way because uh, the different cultures and different nationalities and, and already personalities can be quite challenging. Yeah. Um, but for us, it's very important to, to, to have that, to have like a conversation about a concept or, or design, it's a very different conversation than the one that I would have with with friends that I went to school with, for example. One is maybe also generation, but two, it's also background and everything. But it doesn't mean that it's it's just very different. And you need to, sometimes when you're, you know, you need to get something done and you need to, you're a little bit under stress, you need to force yourself to be open at that moment to kind of have that give and take a little bit. Yes. Even as you're talking about it, I can see you have this determination in your look, but then you have to sort of at some point step back and say, wait, you know, maybe I should listen yeah. to a different viewpoint, right? Because I'm, I'm also, you know, I think designers in any way are quite passionate people and can kind of get emotional so we tend to fight for our idea or want to explain what you do so there's also quite a lot of talking involved and sometimes you just need to kind of I also kind of jump in sometimes and say we should do it like this or <laughs> da, 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 da. and then I need to then I go quiet I, okay well, okay you go ahead what did you want to say yes. I need to really stop myself <laughs> I like that that's the kind of creative tension that yes. I think would exist in many different environments architecture included mm -hmm. thank you so much Wendy <laughs> okay. let's move on to part two okay okay part two Wendy are you ready mm. yeah what is your favorite China related fact I remember having this conversation in the beginning. I was here with some Dutch friends that came to visit us. And I was convinced that Chinese people, their hair never goes gray. <laughs> After a while, I realized that actually everybody dyes their hair. And even the men and all the politicians and everybody, they all dye their hair black. Especially Espe men. And the men, I mean, the women, okay, they dye their hair like already for ages. Everybody does it. But the men and this, this kind of fear of looking old, it was something that really surprised me so much because on the other hand, in China, they respect the old so much more than we do in the West. So I really can't understand that duality of it. I still don't understand it. 
It's absolutely true. And um, it reminds me of an interview we did last season with the head of research and development for L'Oreal here in China. And yeah, he said the same thing. It was about how the market for hair dye has now moved from those men to women, but it started off with men. Yeah. Question two. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? I think everybody has the same, no? Mei banfa. Mei banfa, interesting. That's the first time in two seasons it's, oh, it's okay. been said. No, I find that it used to be said all the time to me. Can you first explain what it means? Oh, it's like, you know, can't do anything about it. It's like, it's how the cookie crumbles, right? Mei banfa. Mm. Mm. So any question that you ask somebody, like, can you do this? No, you know, it's out of my hands. No, I can't do it. Mei banfa, I can't. And I've I've realized that I don't hear it that often anymore. And then I thought, why is that? And I think it's also because I've learned to ask the questions differently. Mm. Or maybe it's also changed, society has changed a little bit. Because, for example, I remember buying a train ticket years ago in the train station. You would say, I want a, a second class train ticket to Nanjing or something. And they would say, no, sorry, sold out. And you would get, okay. So is there another train? And then you would start, you know, rearranging your whole trip. And then you just realize that they don't say, no, the tickets are sold out, but you could get a first class or a third class ticket or a standing ticket if you really want to go to Nanjing. Mm. Nobody said that. So now I've learned to ask my questions differently. I would say I want a ticket to, <laughs> to Nanjing and then they will ask me when or what class it has to be and then they'll get me a ticket. Yes. So it's kind of, it's very silly, but I've learned to ask, um, you know, but maybe you can do it like this or like this. And you kind of give them options how to answer things. And then you get a lot more done. Yes. I can't explain that, but you are right. And I've been in Asia now for 16 years, not just in China. And I've experienced that same thing where you ask a closed question, they'll give you a closed answer. Yes Yes or no? There isn't this culture of, no, but how about that? Yes, I find, like, how do I describe that? How do I attribute that to something? But yeah, it's a curious one. Excellent. What's your favorite destination within China? I have to go back, like, before I had kids, I used to travel a lot more, I think. For me, the most surprising then trips that we made was to go to Xinjiang, to Kashgar, Mm. just because... The landscape is just amazing. It's so beautiful. But it's also such a different China. It's a totally different people. I still remember very clearly the feelings that I had when I was there. It's just so surprising. Yeah. Very different. Next one. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? I have to say the spontaneity of living in China and um, the way things go so fast okay on the one hand it makes you very tired and and has a lot of other things to it but i will miss that it it can accommodate so many things it's so lively and it's so flexible and i remember when i first arrived i thought that was so amazing that you don't have to make appointments like weeks ahead with people you don't have to your work environment it's not so planned out and now it gives me another type of stress but that i think is something quite special Mm. What about anything you'd miss the least? Mm, yeah, the fact of being misunderstood and, and the frustration of it, I, I think. Um, even now, how many years later? Even now, still, and I, you, you're always the foreigner, right? You're always a little bit the one on the outside. Mm. That also gives a certain freedom and, and a pleasure to it. I'm not going to lie about that, but there's also sometimes something alienating about it. Mm. 
Is there anything that still surprises you about life in China? Oh, many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it never gets really boring. You can't say uh, life in China is ever boring. I, you walk around the neighborhood where you go every day and you'll just see something totally new and something new popping up or you notice something of people doing something different than they did five years ago. I was going for lunch and you just pass by this this small little hole in the wall and you look in and it's this super cool little store and there's like very trendy young people in, in the middle of nowhere and you think, wow, you can't imagine that happening even five years ago mm. and, and it's just always this kind of never boring place. Yeah. Okay, next question. Where is your favorite place to go out, to eat or drink or just hang out? Locally, I think for 15 years, nearly every week I go to our local dumpling place on Yanqinglu. And I think if you've been here long, you tend to kind of keep your, well, I do anyway, you tend to keep your life a little bit simple. You go to some places that you know uh, what you're going to get. And I find like in, in work, everything is quite busy and stressful. So I try to keep my family life quite simple. Mm. What is your best or worst purchase that you've made in China? Because I'm a little bit bigger than the average Chinese person and my feet are a little bit bigger. So I used to kind of try and squeeze my feet in small Chinese shoes. And I think, oh, you know, I, I, I can just do it. I can just do it. And I'll fit it in and I'll buy them. And then I would be like walking even just out the door and I couldn't, you know, you would like <laughs> so many things that I gave to IE. Oh, that's the thing. It's We're here in this amazing fashionable city, but yeah, the sizes are not for us. No. <laughs> you can look, but you can't taste. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that thing about being the foreigner. It kind of, the shoe is, it's like, it kind of fits, but it doesn't really fit. No. What is your favorite WeChat sticker? Okay. Um, I got this from a friend and it's just super funny, I think. And it always makes me laugh because it's just this two women fighting, but not really fighting. But it's kind of this very, if you've lived here, yeah, it's so funny because you can just imagine that being your neighbor, right? Yes. <laughs> Next question. What is your go-to song to sing at KTV? Maybe like something from Wham or something <laughs> bring me back to my childhood <laughs> which um, is your favourite Wham song oh Club Tropicana or something like <laughs> you know or like a good a good blondie would also be oh good. well that would suit you especially yeah. you've got you've got a little bit of Deborah Harry about yeah, you a good blondie would do <laughs> I think always does the trick and finally what other China related media or sources of information do you rely on um, I mean, for China news, I would just do like WeChat is actually a very good source of news. Or is it gossip? I don't really know. But um, you realize you know ev everything you know goes through WeChat. Yeah. It's kind of sad. It's the way that the question is worded. But increasingly, it's just WeChat. It just shows yeah. how everyone just uses WeChat. Yeah. Mm. And you sometimes forget that people outside of China don't. Wendy, thank you so much for that. <laughs> My pleasure, it was fun. The last thing that I would ask you is the same thing I ask everyone, which is, out of everyone you know in China, who would you recommend that I interview for the next season of Mosaic of China? My friend, uh, Yong Ah Kim, she's been involved in a lot of like the youth culture and branding. And, and right. What does she do? 
Well, at the moment, she's uh, doing um, all the training where in Adidas, and, but she did other big companies coming into China before. So I think it's quite interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to meeting Yong Ah. <laughs> and once again, thank you, Wendy. Thank you. I love that analogy Wendy made between how a shoe fits and how a foreigner fits in China. To me, that just describes the life of somewhat privileged immigrants everywhere. We like to fit in, and we like not fitting in, and somehow both these states exist at the same time. Maybe this is the same duality that Wendy was describing with her object: we're all just kings sitting on uncomfortable chairs. Before I forget, if you're in Shanghai between now and March the 28th, you can visit the AIM Architecture Pop-up Exhibition in the space above Marienbad Cafe on the corner of Anfulu and Ukanglu. I went there myself the other day, and I've posted a couple of photos online from it. Please check out Facebook, WeChat, or MosaicOfChina.com to see them. You can also see a bunch of other photos there too. There's Wendy's object, her favorite WeChat sticker. Lots of architectural projects and plenty more besides, including a map that shows the 17 lines and counting of the Shanghai Metro. And finally, please subscribe to the premium version of the podcast on Patreon.com/MosaicOfChina for an average of 10 to 15 minutes extra per episode. Here are some clips from today's show. Pretty is also a little bit boring. <laughs> I convinced Vincent to take the train to China. All the way from Europe? Yes. He actually works with you now. Yes. When we called, they say come back in March, and we were like, what? <laughs> you know, you demolish something, and there's a, a pipe there. Nobody told you, or nobody knew that it was there. You've Because seen it. You've, you've seen, seen it. this. And that's all for this week. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, with artwork by Denny Newell, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>